Um, today we are going to be looking at um, Haggai chapter 1, uh, and I would like to begin just by reading that. If you would like to follow along, we are in the book of Haggai. I'll be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew it, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up in the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the year, in the second year of Darius the king. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are with us. I pray that even now you would be present in the reading of your word, which we know you have breathed out. You have inspired this word. Scripture tells us the grass, the, grass, the grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And I pray, God, that we would abide in your word this morning as we endeavor to seek how we may build this community of faith to bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If I say going home, It might conjure a lot of different feelings in you. In fact, it might conjure some conflicting feelings 
in some of us. This idea of going home wherever that is and whatever that means is interesting. Maybe some of you think, well, yeah, I'm just going home this afternoon. That's always been my home. That will always be my home. For some of you, maybe you have had the opportunity to revisit a place that was once home and discover, oh, this is a little different. Like the famous Thomas Wolfe novel, You Can Never Go Home Again. But maybe on the flip side of that, there's the Bon Jovi song, Hey, Who Says You Can't Go Home? It's just like I never left, right? After my brother graduated law school in Virginia, we had the opportunity to go down with my father and a couple of his sisters to a place called Pound, Virginia, uh, deep in Appalachia. If you've ever heard the term hillbilly, this is where it comes from. Uh, this, I, I promise you, I'm, I'm half hillbilly. Um, after 40 years of being away, to be able to go and to see, to look around, the house had long uh, been demolished, but the, the barn was still standing, and memories and, and stories just came pouring out of my dad and his sisters, and they're bickering over details, and there's this weird joy and mingled with some mixed feelings and visiting graves of my uncles and things like that. And there's a weird kind of nostalgia and joy in coming home. Or maybe you relate more to this scene from the film Forrest Gump, where Jenny and Forrest, the titular character, they're together again and you know, it's his childhood sweetheart, and they're taking strolls every day and getting to know each other again. And one day, they happen to stroll past Jenny's childhood home, a place with really terrible memories for her, a place where she and her sister were abused by her father. She stops, and she looks at it. It's dilapidated. It's falling apart, and she can't help herself. She picks up every rock she can find and starts hurling them breaking siding and windows and finally she just collapses weeping and the title character comes up says nothing and just sits beside her and in the voiceover narration he says sometimes there just aren't enough rocks what a strange thing this idea of going home can produce in us this weird mingling of sometimes conflicting emotions, sometimes that we feel simultaneously. I think that understanding this kind of weird conflict and this weird like, can you ever really go home again mindset is helpful and informative when we put ourselves in the shoes of the returning exiles who are coming back to Jerusalem, coming back to this promised land, coming back to this place that is supposed to be their home and finding out that things might be a little bit disappointing and finding out that their expectations might not be all that they had brought them up to be. Even the exiles coming home, uh, the, the, this, this section of Ezra from Ezra 4 in, into Ezra chapter 6 is written in a different language because now the people are removed from their Hebrew language and they're, they're speaking Aramaic now and there's this weird mix of, of cultures with the people of the land and that's the entire reason the building project stalls out because there is tension between these two groups of people. If you can really imagine and, and strain your, your, your imagination uh, to think of a land 
inhabited by two separate ethno-linguistic groups, uh, and sometimes there's tension and fighting over who makes the laws and who's the real owner of the culture and things like that. This is happening now in Jerusalem at this time. And this is where we come to in Haggai, where they have been here for years and are reminded of their original plan of why they are there. We are calling this series Build This House because it all stems from this command from God through King Cyrus as he makes this proclamation to come back to the land and rebuild the house of the Lord. And last week we talked about some key people in that, Zerubbabel, who is the governor, later becomes the governor. He, he acts as this sort of leader, this king figure for the group. Uh, Joshua, the high priest who is here, and also the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And we talked about how exile was never meant to be the end of the story. And this morning, what I want to uh, draw your attention uh, to draw your attention to in the text is this idea that sometimes instead of scolding, we just need a, a gentle nudge. We just need a gentle nudge. What I want to do this morning is just kind of walk through the passage a little bit, um, share some observations that I have from the text, and see maybe how it can apply to our lives today. The first thing to note is right from chapter 1, and we see this several times throughout the book of Haggai, we know exactly when this is. This is August 29th, 520 B.C., and each of the dates that are, that are mentioned in the book of Haggai tell us plainly exactly when this is. This takes place over the course of a few months in the year 520 B.C. And so the first thing that we have to notice is it has been 15 years, more than 15 years, since the original rebuilding effort stalled out. Zerubbabel and Joshua and the prophets and thousands of people returning from exile have come, they started, it didn't work out, the, the building project fizzled out, they settled and they sort of forgot about what they were meant to be doing there. The second thing that I wanna point out here is as this I, idea of the word of the Lord coming to the people here, and remember the role of a prophet is, is to listen to God and represent God's word to the people and being the voice of God to the people. And in this case, the word of the Lord comes through the prophet Haggai, but it comes to multiple people. It comes first to Zerubbabel and Joshua, and then to the people more generally. And the point here that I want to make is, God is perfectly capable of revealing his will to more than one person. I don't know if you have ever been in a place where somebody says, oh, God's made it clear to me that X, Y, Z. And sometimes you think, well, that's, I, how do I argue with that? Except to say, God hasn't made it clear to me. <laughs> you know, I, I went to a Bible school, which meant there's a lot of, you know, weird dating culture uh, that happened. And uh, more than once, I can't believe how often this happened, you would hear, uh, you know, someone say, listen, God told me we're supposed to be together. Um, which, uh, listen, young people... Uh, Never say that to some, like, maybe it's true, wonderful. Tell them on your third anniversary, God told you that. But like, anyway, uh, 
But I heard once uh, this young lady who had the perfect response. She said back, she said, that's great, that's wonderful. And until God reveals that to me, we'll just sit on that. <laughs> great. <laughs> you married couples, you know this. You, if you've been married long enough, you understand this. Maybe that there's some time that God is just stirring in you and you really feel moved to do something or obey in a certain way and you, you go to your spouse and you say, God, I, I really think God is, is convicting us to do this. And your husband, your wife looks at you and says, I just had that same thought this morning. You know what? God is perfectly capable of revealing himself and revealing his will to more than one person. And if ever you're in that situation where somebody says, I really feel God moving us to do this, and you go, I've felt the same conviction. Could that possibly be the voice of God? Ding, 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 ding. Yes, you're onto something there. God is perfectly capable of revealing his will to more than one person. And there's something that, that happens as, as God's will is revealed to the people. And he says, are, are you content to sit in your paneled homes while the house of the Lord lies in ruins? Now, let me explain what this means, okay? Some of you are thinking, oh, they're siding on my house. Is this a sin? No. Um, what he is saying here with paneled homes is this idea of, of wood or some kind of overlay that overlaps over top that goes on top of the existing structure. It does nothing for the home structurally. It just makes it look a little bit nicer. I know nothing about that. I will re defer to my wife every time when she says, trust me, this looks better. I say, okay. Um, but it's that sort of notion. What I do not want is to do what I have... I have seen so many people do in, in my opinion, twisting scripture to manipulate people, to make you feel guilty for No one is saying you cannot have a nice house. Many of you have nice homes and God has blessed us greatly. I am very grateful for my nice home. What God is doing is he is challenging the people's priorities. What he is doing is he is saying, have you gotten so insular that you are only concerned with your own house, that you are not caring for the house of the Lord that is meant to be a place where you come together in community to perform these rituals of worship, to enact the functions of God's grace and mercy towards his people? And we need to ask ourselves, am I prioritizing my comfort over the needs of God's people? Where is my priority when it comes to how I am spending my time and my resources and my skills and experience and whatever that looks like in your life? There is nothing wrong with having a nice house, but I think sometimes we are meant to feel a little bit of discomfort, that we're meant to be roused from this too focused on my own kind of world that I forget to look at the whole house of the Lord and focus on the people of God. Earlier this week, I was, uh, I was chatting with somebody and um, I, I think many of you know this. There are, there are a lot of hurting people in the church. There are a lot of really hurting people in this community right now. And we were thinking about and, and, and talking about some of that and, uh, and this person said, you know, I just, I went home 
And I felt uncomfortable. I felt uncomfortable going to my nice house and sitting on my couch and sleeping in my comfortable bed and watching my TV knowing this other person had this great need. I just felt uncomfortable. I think that's an okay reaction. I think that there is something that God is doing when he moves us towards looking not just at what our own lives look like and to say, okay, how am I caring for God's people as a whole? Am I prioritizing my comfort over the needs of God's people? He's challenging the priorities of the people there. And what happens is he comes and you can you know, read the first part of verse 5. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, here it comes. He's going to lay the hammer down. If, you, if you're familiar with the genre of the prophets, if you've been reading along in the prophets up until this moment, you might even tense up a little bit because you know, oh man, sometimes God lays the smack down. God is really like, oof. You know, the, the prophets are often marked. They are, they are not just containing, but characteristic of this abrasive, even harsh denunciations. And not just on, on the surrounding nations. Read Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea and Amos. And God is, and you, and you, and another. Th- oh, Israel, you think you're sitting pretty? Let me tell you about what's going on. And there is some really hard and harsh language contained in the prophets. And so we kind of tense up and we prepare ourselves. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Really? That's, that's where we're going with this? Yeah. Because sometimes instead of scolding, we just need a gentle nudge. And here in the book of Haggai, not just now, but more than once, we see God coming and gently, compassionately saying, hey, let, let's rethink this a little bit. And God doesn't always need to lay the smack down. God doesn't always need to send into exile. Sometimes God really is just gently rousing us from our trance and saying, hey, it's time to get back to basics. Hey, it's time to remember why I called you here in the first place. Why does he do that? It is rooted in the very character of God. Um, There's a verse in in Exodus 34 that I like to call the John 3.16 of the Old Testament because it's repeated over and over and over again and it so succinctly summarizes the character and the plan and the mission of God. It's when Moses is frustrated with the people and he breaks the Ten Commandments. I think he was aiming for somebody, but that's just speculation. And And then God says, hey, write those down again. Let's try again. And Moses is like, why? Why on earth would you give these people a second chance? And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Why would I give them a second chance? Because it is just who I am. I am gracious and merciful abounding in steadfast love. And sometimes we don't need scolding. We just need a gentle nudge. We just need God to say, hey, let's try again. And as we keep reading in verse 6, and then it's repeated, this idea in verses 9 through 11, God is kind of saying, hey, as you consider your ways, look around. 
Look at the things that you're trying to do right now. Look at the way that you are trying to save money and make plans for the future. Look at the way that you are trying to plant crops, that you are trying to say, oh, look at how God is blessed, oh, nothing. Consider what's happening. Now, I want to be very, very careful because I think a lot of times we can fall into a prosperity gospel mindset when we read passages like this. This idea of a transactional God who's like, look, if you do this, then I'll give you this. And if you just do this, your life will look like this. I am not promising anyone blessings this morning. I am not promising that your life is going to be turned around if you just give a little bit more or if you just donate some of your time. If you just volunteer, then God is going to... I do not want you to get that idea. What I am saying is, maybe sometimes we find ourselves kind of swirling and spinning our wheels and like, this is just not going right. Maybe consider first where you're at with your relationship with God. Maybe when it feels like everything is falling apart and you don't know why, you just cannot pinpoint what's going on, start with your spiritual health. Start with your relationship with God. Say, you know what, my life is falling apart and I haven't prayed in weeks. I haven't gone to God's word in I don't know how long. And if I'm saying, oh, why can't this just get together? God's going, hey, maybe start with a relationship with me. Can, can we start there? And in that same way, God, instead of scolding, is gently nudging the people and saying, hey, come back to me. Come back to my word. Come back to my command for you and listen. And there's something that's really interesting after this, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And in verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and I may be glorified. He's not just saying go and build the house. Here's how to do it. And in fact, if we look at these passages in Ezra chapter 5 and 6 where this, this command is reiterated, there is even more instruction given. There's you know, here's, here's where you need to get the gold and silver. Here's where we're going to pay for it. Here's how we're going to rely on the Persians to help fund this endeavor. Here's how many cubits uh, the, the thing needs to be. It's not as detailed as it was when Solomon built the first temple, but there is some instruction about how to build this temple. And I think the point here is where God calls, he equips. If God is calling you to do something you had better believe he has got a plan of how to accomplish that. He is not going, I think you should do this. Okay, how's that going to happen? I don't know, that's up to you. God has a plan, and where he calls, he is going to equip you in order to make it happen. If God has called you to obedience, he will, by his spirit, provide the means to accomplish that will. Because where God calls, he equips He himself is going to provide the means. Sometimes, instead of scolding, we just need a gentle nudge. And when I think about this place where the people of Israel are, where they're sitting in Jerusalem, and they've forgotten about that building project for over 15 years, and God comes and he says, hey guys, let's remember why we're here. Let's get back at it. I'm not mad. 
I just want to remind you of what's going on. It reminds me a little bit of another time in Scripture when that happens. There's this passage in 1 Kings, which is, by the way, right after a, a, one of the most amazing, coolest uh, stories in Scripture. In 1 Kings chapter 18, you have the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel, calling down fire from heaven, and you know, talk about laying the smack down, absolutely shows uh, these prophets of Baal the business end of the, st- you know, like absolutely has this incredible victory. And immediately after that, we find Elijah feeling lonely, feeling desperate, feeling at his absolute wit's end, and wanting to die. Let me read this for you. In 1 Kings chapter 19, I'm going to start in verse 3. And then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under the broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a he- There was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's that same kind of gentle, hey, consider your ways. Sometimes, instead of scolding, we just need a gentle nudge. Sometimes, in the midst of a deep valley, we just need to be sustained for a little bit. We need to have 40 days where we're sleeping and eating and God is sustaining us in that way. And he says, that's enough, that's good, that's okay. That's all I want you to do right now. And then, at the end of that, God's coming and he's saying, hey, Elijah, what are are we doing here now? I think it's time. Let's get back at it. He reminds him of what is true. He gets his attention. There's a, a wind and an earthquake and a fire thing, and then he says it again. What are you doing here? It's that gentle nudge of a loving, compassionate, gracious, patient God saying, let's remember why we're here, okay? Let's get right back at it, and it's okay. And the best part about this this kind of section of Haggai is that it could end there. The word of the Lord came. He said, do this, and that's that's all that the prophet needs to do, right? I I did my my part. I, I gave the message. But as God so often does, he provides this sort of second half of the story. He provides this little coda where he lets us know what's going on. And then they get up. They come together. They remind themselves of why they're there, and they get back to work. And it tells us in verse 15, exactly the day that it happened later in September the 21st. Takes a few weeks, but that's okay. Remember, they don't have Twitter at this point. They're they're telling each other, hey, let's, let's get back at this, okay? And then something really special happens. I, 
I read this passage and I, I think about like, like an afterward, like the end of the movie where they tell you, hey, here, here's what happened afterwards. Like, uh, like if you've ever seen Braveheart, at the very end, you know, the end scene, they, they don't really show you the battle, but they, there's this voiceover that's like, and then they came in the fields of Bannockburn and won their free, you know. Anyway, that, that's kind of how I read this passage where, you know what, they came together, they looked at each other, they said, yeah, that's why we're here and they got at it, and they started again. And then something really special happens. Haggai comes back, and he says, there's another word from the Lord for you. And in verse 13, he says, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Spirit of God stirs up the spirit of the people, and they feel this renewed joy and sense of purpose. And sometimes, Obedience comes first, and then we, def- we find the joy. Then we find the motivation. Sometimes it takes just getting back at it a little bit, and we are reminded, and God's Spirit moves in us. Sometimes, instead of a scolding, we just need a gentle nudge. And it's time to remember why God called us here in the first place. So what? As I look at this and what happened with the people of Jerusalem coming back from exile in Persia 2,500 years ago, what are we to do with this? I do not think God is commanding us to build the third temple here and now. I do not think that we ought to bring, you know, wood from Lebanon and, and take money from the people of Persia, you know, go to Iran and knock on doors and go, hey, you know, Darius said so 2,500 years ago, check the, check the log. But how ought we to respond to this? Because I think that we too have a mandate. We too have a reason that we are gathered here. Just as the people of Judah were called to come back home and rebuild the temple that they would have a place to meet and convocate and worship together, we too have a command to build God's kingdom, to make disciples, to teach all that Jesus taught them. And I think that the function of this community, of this body of believers, is to remind ourselves what has God commanded us to do in building this house, in building this community, in building God's kingdom to draw everyone, every nation and tribe and tongue closer to God in the name of his son, Christ. And so how do we take the story of the exiles returning and Haggai's words to them and think about our own mandate here and now. The first thing that I want to say is this. Maybe you are in the middle of that 15-year period. Maybe you are in the middle of your 40 days in the wilderness just sleeping and eating, getting the cake from God, and going back to your nap, and that is okay. You are going to have times, especially right after mountaintop experiences, where you experience valleys, and that's okay. I want you to know that is normal. God has that valley in your life for a time, and there is good growing, and there is good purpose that God has for you in that moment. 
And if you are in that place where God is just sustaining you day to day, that's okay. But I also know that exile was never meant to be the end of the story. And that the valleys that God has in our lives are never meant to go on forever. And there may come a time when God is coming to you and he's saying, consider your ways. Hey, what, what are you doing here? Can I gently remind you of what we're meant to be accomplishing now? Let's together dust ourselves off, take a deep breath, rely on God for his strength to equip us to do it, and get back at it. And I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know what a gentle nudge for you looks like in your life. But maybe, just maybe, this morning, you've been experiencing a valley, and this is your gentle nudge from God. This is God saying to you, hey, I miss you. Can we get back into a prayer time together? Hey, I really need you to heed my word. Would you prioritize getting into it on a regular basis? Hey, I never meant for you to go at it alone. I've put HCC here in your life to surround you with people that love you and are going to point you towards my son, Jesus. Let's get in that community. Maybe God is nudging you in that way. Maybe God is moving you. Maybe you feel God calling you to something and you just need a little gentle nudge from a patient God who is abounding in steadfast love. When I think about <clears throat> this idea of um, the people obeying and then God's spirit moving in them and then him stirring their spirit, I think about this idea of obedience coming before motivation and joy, and I thought, of course, of a quote from C.S. Lewis. In Mere Christianity, he talks about some of these virtues that we ought to have as Christians and as believers, and one of the things that he says is, you know what, sometimes it's okay to just fake it a little bit. Sometimes it's okay to pretend. Sometimes it's okay to act kind or act joyful and you know what follows genuine god-given kindness genuine spirit-filled joy it says very often the only way to get equality in reality is to start behaving as if you had it already little down the way he says you see what's happening the christ himself the son of god who is man just like you and god just like his father is actually at your side and is already at that moment beginning to turn your patience, your pretense, into a reality. The real, the real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his Zoe which he unpacks a great deal before this, this other kind of abundant, deep, abiding life. His Zoe into you, beginning to turn the tin soldier into a real man. I think sometimes it's okay to start obeying, and the joy and the motivation and the stirring of God's spirit in us will follow thereafter. But always remember, 
just like Lewis said and just like Haggai said to the people in Jerusalem, that God is with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. And I know what you might be thinking, or rather, I should say, I, I know what I hope that you're thinking, is that, well, hang on a second, Pastor Daniel. Just because God gives a promise to a certain people in Scripture in a certain time and place and context doesn't mean that we can take that promise wholeheartedly, you know, and, and, and just uh, apply it to ourselves. And that is true. That is absolutely true. We should always consider the context. We should consider to whom God is speaking and what is the relationship and what's going on when he makes that command or promise or instruction or whatever it is. But I believe quite firmly that we can take this promise that God has for the people in another place, in another language, 2,500 years ago when he says, I am with you, and apply that to our lives because it is not rooted in the time and place. It is rooted in the very character of who God is. I'm everlasting. I am a faithful and patient God abounding in steadfast love. That is just who he is, and he repeats this promise over and over and over again. As early as Genesis 25, Jacob is worried about what's happening and what God is calling him to, and God says, I will not leave you until I have accomplished what I intend. I will not do it. Throughout the narrative of the book of, of, of Genesis in the life of Joseph, we have this refrain that's repeated, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph over and over again. The phrase comes up. Before Moses hands off leadership to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31, he reminds him, God is with you wherever you go. He will not forsake you. First Chronicles 28 David, as he is giving instruction and encouragement to his son Solomon to build the first temple, is saying, God is with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. First Kings chapter 8, as Solomon dedicates that temple and he has a prayer and he says to the people, God will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And it's repeated in the New Testament, in Hebrews 13, 5, never leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus' very words at the very end of the Gospels to his disciples and indeed to us, his followers now, is behold, I am with you even until the end of the age. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever God is calling you to, whether you are in a season on the mountain or in the valley or God is gently nudging you, whatever is going on, he's saying, I am with you. And here's the thing about the temple, and we'll get into this in coming weeks. The temple is great, not because of the building material, not because of the accoutrements that they bring, not because of the function and they're following the Levitical law or anything like that. God is telling the people, the temple is great because I'm here. The temple is great because it's where my presence is. And guess what, men and women? God's presence is here now inside of us. And God is stirring us up to accomplish his will because he is here with us and we can always, always boldly have confidence in that promise. 
I am with you, declares the Lord. God, I pray that you would move in us, that you would stir our spirit to obedience, that we as individuals, but also as a church, as a community of faith, would obey your word. We would heed your gentle nudge as we respond to whatever and wherever you have called us to go and be and do. I pray that we would do it with joy, with gladness, with steadfastness, always, always, always remembering you are here with us and that we might enjoy and revel in your presence. I pray that we would do that now even as we sing songs of praise, that it would be because your very spirit is here in our midst. And as you move, we feel you and we praise you, God, all in the mighty name of your Son, Christ. Amen.